Hey, everybody, I am Ricky Rackman, and you, yes, you are listening to today's Boondoggle. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to this intro before the intro of our today's Boondoggle radio show. Uh, as you know, we're a veteran-owned and operated podcast, and this has been an incredibly therapeutic journey for me as a veteran that struggles with PTSD and anxiety, just getting out and talking to people. But uh, it does cost us some money, so if you feel so obliged to donate to our GoFundMe, we have a GoFundMe under Today's Boondoggle. We also have a Venmo at Today's Boondoggle that you can donate to, uh, our Anchor Sponsorship at anchor.fm forward slash today's boondoggle uh, any questions comments suggestions complaints you can email us at today's boondoggle at gmail.com and please follow us on our social media sites at, uh, at today's boondoggle on instagram facebook twitter all your uh, social media platforms as well as our youtube channel our rumble channel and our bitshoot channel please follow subscribe comment and download and please consider checking out our sponsors if you uh, support our sponsor dream nutrition you can receive 10 percent off your order by using the promo code boondog10 at checkout so dream nutrition they're a veteran owned and operated company as well so please support them and receive 10 percent off using the promo code boondog10 thanks for your time and thanks for listening Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival is back at historic Cruise Stadium in Columbus, Ohio with the Foo Fighters. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Kiss. Plus, Rob Zombie, Deftones, Queens of the Stone Age, Godsmack, and more. Memorial Day weekend. Passes on sale this Friday at noon at SonicTempleFestival.com for only $10 down. going on everybody it's bill bailey with today's boondoggle and a real quick housekeeping note if you are watching us on youtube or rumble or BitChute or uh the uh odyssey channel please hit that follow and subscribe button and if you're listening to us on spotify itunes google 
any of the podcast platforms, please hit that follow and subscribe button. Help us uh, build up our numbers so we can bring you conversations like the one that I am so privileged and honored to be having tonight with uh, my friend, my brother, Mr. Matt Pinfield. How you, How you doing, doing, Matt? Bro? Good to see you today, buddy. How's everything? Yeah, good, man. Good. Uh, wow. I mean, there's just so much to to talk about with you. And uh, but you know what I like to do normally when I have somebody on for the first time is is go back way back. So originally, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, you know, I mean, the first thing that <clears throat> I took to major interest in was music from like the very a very young age. I mean, you know, I. The first memories I have really are sitting in front of a 45 record player, you know, to play, you know, seven inch singles that my parents had bought for me and my brother and sister. And I was the youngest of three. And my brother was 10 years older. My sister was six years older. So, um, and, you know, my dad had been in the military. He had been a military officer, fought in the Korean War as a Marine. Um, and then because of his heart condition, he got an honorable discharge and went back to school because originally I think then he was planning on having a career in the military. And when he got the honorable discharge because of his health, um, he decided to go back to school. So he went to the University of Georgia, which is where I was born in Athens, Georgia, you know, the town that, you know, brought us REM and V-52s and so many other people that were, you know, and the Georgia Bulldogs, of course. But, um, you know, that's where... Uh, I would lived, you know, it, I don't really have that many memories of it because at a very young age, at the age of, you know, almost two and a half, three, uh, we moved to New Jersey to a little town called Donnell in New Jersey. And the only way you might know that is there's a movie called Whiplash that came okay. out, um, you know, about the like roller derby or something, right? Or No, this one was different. This was Miles Teller, the actor he played. He was a jazz drummer, and oh, uh, okay, yeah. And it was the guy that's in like the farmers insurance commercials. Yeah, um, he was play, and he won an Oscar for that for that role. But there's a scene in the movie where uh, the kid's driving down the street, Miles Teller, and he's re racing to Denellen to compete, and he flips his car on the road on Denellen Avenue, which is where I lived when I was a kid. We lived in a two family house. You know, my parents didn't have much money, of course. You know, my mom was, uh, was when, when before I was born, she was working in Georgia there. But when she had a baby, of course, you know, there was no such, you know, they didn't, we, we, there were no nannies, you know, or any of that other thing. And they really couldn't afford babysitters. So at, at that young age, my mother st was stayed at home with me and my brother and sister were in school. Um, but, uh, you know, we were so poor that, you know, we bought a used 45 player that one of the neighbors was selling uh, with a box of 45s. And around that period of time, the things that were big were British Invasion and Motown, so, and soul, soul records and pop records. So, you know, my first memories are the Beatles. And uh, Beatles are, of course, the you know, main thing, Beatles and Stones. And that was, you know, this is, you got to remember, it's mid-1960s. So, you know, we lived in that town, Dunellen, and... Uh, you know, I uh, immediately fell in love with music. It was the thing I was the most fascinated by. And I liked, I loved records that were modern pop records. I did not like those kiddie records, you know, and my parents had bought me some of those, you know, the Disneyland records or <laughs> yeah. you know, those things that they have for kids. And uh, when we moved to the town that I ended up growing up in, in uh, East Brunswick, New Jersey, when they had to pull out the refrigerator 
they found that I had thrown every one of the children's records under the fridge. <laughs> because all I wanted to do was listen to like the rock and pop records that, uh, and soul records that uh, my yeah. had. I was not, not having the children's records. So from a very young age, you know, so, so to know what I wanted to do. I mean, I was, I had a fascination with radio from the time I was a young kid. And those were the days of transistor radios. Uh, so if you weren't listening to radio in the car and it was, you know, in that period of time, you know, very few people even had eight track players. I don't think eight tracks had even really reared their head yet. They might've just started and there were some, you know, cassettes, I'm sure, but, Really, people listen to radio. And, you know, I, years later, I saw that they used to have record players in cars. But, you know, I never met anybody with record players in cars, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. And plus, you hear the stories about putting a record in a car. You got to change it every song while you're driving. That wouldn't really work out too well. Plus, hitting bumps. I mean, you know, <laughs> would be, you know it's just really funny when I, when I look at photos of that era. Um, and, uh, but... I loved radio because I loved music. Music was my first love, but then I realized there were people talking about radio. And, and, and that's, I was absolutely obsessed from a very young age. So, you know, literally in my, you know, preteen years, you know, like six, seven, eight, you know, I dreamed of, you know, either being a musician or, uh, or somebody in a band because uh, I love songs and music so much or being on the radio. And so, as time went on, you know, as I got older, um, and my first band when I was in junior high, the band was called Thunderhead. And we used to play all the, you know, junior high dances. And there was a teen center where, with a pool table where kids would hang out in East Brunswick, New Jersey. And we were the band from our town. So uh, you got to, this is mid 70s, you know, so like 1976. So the music that we were playing was, you know, Bad Company and David Bowie and Bachman Turner Overdrive and Kiss and doing our best attempts to play Aerosmith and things that were, uh, you know, popular at that time. And some Aerosmith hadn't even really broken through majorly for like another year. I remember when we had until I was in high school. I mean, it wasn't until they re-released uh, Walk This Way a second time and... Uh, and dream on. I mean, they'd already had the albums by that time. Rocks and Draw the Line were almost out. I think we're already out before those songs actually became hits uh, the first time around. So that was the music I loved. Um, I was always yeah. looking for new music to listen to. Uh, that's you know, I my my parents had a you know friend, another another teacher. We went over to their house, and I remember the older brother showing me bands like Aerosmith and Slade. And uh, there was a guy also in junior high in seventh grade that moved to my town in my junior high school uh, from Liverpool, England. And he had, you know, things like Bowie and uh, Slade and Gary Glitter and, you know, T-Rex and stuff like that. And T-Rex I knew, of course, from Bang a Gong, but uh, I did not know how much a hold 70s Glam had in the UK. I really wasn't aware of Sweet and bands like that. So I uh, loved all that stuff, but I remember he had the first Kiss album, and I just remember how weird they looked on the cover. How scary those guys looked! I was like, "What's what Gene Simmons with that tongue and his craziness on the cover?" I yeah. said, "Check this out." So, you know, there was always that interest, but I also like pop and soul. I mean, at that period of time, pop music was everything. You know what I mean? Every it was so many different things, from Jim Croce to uh, Steely Dan. 
uh, to Deep Purple, uh, uh, to Alice Cooper. It was just so diverse. I mean, pop radio was very different than it is now, where it's really, you know, pop is pretty much, you know, really limited to certain sounds, like a popular hip hop thing now, or, you know, it's it was very different. I mean, everything was was in pop because you know it was top forty radio and <clears throat> more inclusive of all different styles and genres of, of uh, popular music. So. Um, gotcha. that was the thing for me. And then, you know, like I said, starting a band, my friends, these kids had a band, somebody else was supposed to be their singer. I went in one day and sang rebel rebel. I was in, you know, the, the that song had come out, uh, in the spring of 74 with that David Bowie album, diamond dogs. And, uh, I loved it of course. And that's when I really had discovered Bowie, you know, went back and found Ziggy Stardust and all that, that stuff. But, um, I went to the guy's house to these guys were rehearsing in the basement and the singer was not great. <laughs> that's the only way to say it. That's a kind way of saying it. So I got up and said, I, I can sing that song. So I got up and I sang rebel rebel and they were like, uh, you're the singer now. And so I, I started singing for the band and uh, we did like, you know, rebel rebel suffers at the city, all those songs. And like I said, all those other bands that I mentioned to you. So, you know, I was the front man and the singer of a band, you know, and I really, of course, loved doing that. But radio was also an obsession. And there, at that period of time, we were in uh, central New Jersey. So the stations that you heard were mostly New York radio stations. And at that point, I was also listening to FM because I had an older brother and sister. So I was listening to, you know, album oriented rock. And uh, and my, they also had great taste. You know, my brother and sister were into a lot of cool music. So um you know, and then I started going to concerts as a, you know, as a young kid, the, the bands that I saw first were like, you know, Queen doing Night at the Opera in the theater at the Beacon Theater. Wow. Jethro Tull at the Garden, Bad Company at the Garden, Aerosmith at the Garden, um, you know, uh, and so I, I saw some really great shows when I was very young with my older brother while I was in junior high school. And then, you know, I would go to other shows like, you know, there's a place called the New York Palladium where for the first time I saw Cheap Trick, UFO, and Rush all on the same bill. Wow. Or uh, Judas Priest with this band I loved from uh, New Jersey called Stars that were managed by Kisses and with a Z. Uh, and Ario Speedwagon, who we had no idea who Ario Speedwagon was because they didn't play him on the radio on in, in New York. Uh, but they were headlining because there were enough people, I guess, from the Midwest where they were popular. This is way before they broke through with... Uh, you know, high infidelity uh, to when they had a live album out. So, you, you know, we'd see all these bands and go see these bills. And, uh, but one of the things I did when I was 10 years old was I became friendly with a DJ, uh, a guy, his name is Rich Phoenix. There was a local radio station uh, in a town, uh, New Brunswick or Rutgers University is where, I, you know, I ended up doing college radio and DJing the rock clubs in that area. You know, when I became, you know, a teenager and the drinking age was 18, but, I would call this DJ up and I, and I befriended him and, you know, I would call him and he was the only one on there that played cool music. Like, in other words, he played things that were on the chart, but he was a Beatles fanatic and, you know, he played everything, you know, from the Beatles to raspberries to, you know, things you would expect some Led Zeppelin. And I ended up uh, eventually convincing him to let me come up and visit him uh, in this. And it was, you know, it was a very da dangerous town in that period of the seventies when I was like 10, <laughs> backing up a little bit from before i had the band but uh my parents dropped me off there and i went into the studio and watched him do his show one night 
uh, and you know, I was in love with it. I was like, man, I, I wish I could do this. So, you know, at some point, um, you know, because of my obsession with, with radio and the fact that I wanted to do it, my father at this point, fast forward, you know, he had become a physics teacher, you know, and eventually head of the science department at school because he was, you know, really a smart guy, but he also ran the audiovisual department at the high school. So he had a catalog yeah. where you, yeah, isn't this, it, Bill, it was crazy. He had a catalog where you could buy um, like a kit to build an AM transmitter. And he built this AM transmitter in the basement. And it only broadcasts like two blocks. But we put together some cheap beat up turntables and a Radio Shack mixer and a microphone. And me and my friends would do radio shows. That's you know, awesome. We were like, you know, 10, I think 9, 10, 11, you know, like, those years right before junior high right before puberty you know and yeah radio shows there um, we got so many parallels matt that's amazing it's like my dad was a world war ii marine um i i didn't ha have access to like a studio but i was infatuated at a young age too with you know uh like johnny carson you know watching him and somebody you know hosting shows and listening we had wmms here in cleveland you know so I would get a tape recorder and I would just record myself and I'd have do skits and all kinds of stuff at a young age, you know, and That's then uh, this was my, my gateway too. my, my older sister would get uh, vinyl records for Christmas. I've shared this story before and, and she was big, like Leaf Garrett and Rod Stewart fan. And one year she opens up kiss alive and she's like, ew, what is this? And I'm across the room and I'm like, Oh, you know, and ended up being mine. And that was it, man. That was yeah, Kiss, uh, that was a big record, Kiss Alive, because that's what got a lot of the other people that I knew in junior high into Kiss at that period of time. Because and it was a, you know, it was their breakthrough record, that double live record, and um, you know, and I was I, I they had the three albums before it, Kiss, Hotter Than Hell, and Dressed to Kill, and I loved them all. And you know, I would mow lawns and and deliver papers to buy records. But it's funny you see you talk about how you used to record on a cassette because that's what I used to do, you know. I used to do fake radio shows, you know, like I record the song and then talk and yeah. driving from New Jersey to Florida to visit my sister after she got married. And, you know, I'm in the back of the car with these like old beat up cans, headphones and people looking at me. My mother still remembers it. My mother's 90. Uh, and she remembers like people looking at me like I was an alien in the backseat of the car. But I had <laughs> headphones on so I wouldn't torture my parents. And then I'd make these cassettes that were like my radio shows, you know, or, you know, awesome. the only person listening to them was me, but it was still, it was, you know, it was the dream that you had. And it's like, yeah, you know, what you do as a young person. And now of course, technology makes it so young people can, you know, see what they do, hear what they do. There's, they, there's such an advantage, but when you wanted to do that in those days, in the seventies, yeah. uh, you, you know, you had to, you really had to work very hard at it. It was just the same thing with being able to get on the radio. You know, I'll tell you this story too. You know, in high school, they had a class for radio and they kept lying to us, telling us, oh yeah, we're going to eventually get a license, get a radio station here at the high school. And, you know, I, I wanted to believe them, but at 16 years old, we had the course to learn what you needed. See, back then you, they deregulated everything, but back then you had to have a, uh, radio, a third class radio tele, telephone, tele, it was called, yeah, it was a third class radio telephone license. What that meant was you were able to take readings on 
and control a transmitter. That was really the only way you could even get into college radio at that period of time. Uh, you know, of course, now anybody can just do a radio show and they're a producer and it's much easier and things are all automated. But even when I went to, was in college radio at Rutgers, I mean, you had to take readings on the transmitter and make sure that it stayed within a legal bound, you know, every, every single uh, hour. So at 16, I studied for this test and there were three elements of the test, one, two, and nine. And nine was the hard stuff. And you could only take the test once in like, I don't know, six months. If you failed, you had to wait six oh, months. Get. So I passed element one and two, but nine was so difficult, I failed it, and I was brokenhearted. I didn't have a radio station to be on anyway. Uh, at that point, I was about 15, but at 16, I went back and took the test again and passed it. And, you know, took a bus into New York City to the FCC and took the test. And um, and then I did my first college radio show, like, as a kind of as a – it was – a pledge drive. Like, in other words, you had to put money up because they were trying to raise money for the college radio station. And I went on the radio for two hours at, uh, or an hour or two hours at the Rutgers station. I remember them saying to me, man, you're, you're really good. You know, I, you can, you can really do this. And of course I was still wasn't old enough, but I tried to get away with getting on the air that summer and they busted me. So I was going to show there for like another year or so till I graduated. And uh, then it was actually a college age, but um, it was, it was, it had planted the seed. And then, you know, I did college radio there the first, you know, uh, at Rutgers and, and did, and then I started becoming a nightclub DJ to rock and alternative clubs and believe it or not supported myself for years doing that before I actually ever got a chance to be on the radio, uh, you know, like more than for a, a part-timer. And, uh, yeah. And you know, you mentioned WMMS, Bill. I love that station. And I got to work with Kid Leo at Columbia Records, who's a legend of Cleveland. And oh, yeah. Just one of the great, you know, radio people that broke bands like Ronnie Binghamheimer in Los Angeles. And I mean, you know, but, but uh, Kid Leo is a legend, you know, and I worked with him when I did AR at Columbia Records. Uh, Leo was working there as well. And of course, now you also, I mean, if, if he's still there, he was helping program, uh, you know, Little Stevens Underground Garage on Sirius XM and working with that in Outlaw Country for a while. So, you know, I became friends with Leo and he had that reputation for breaking so many bands. I mean, so many records. Oh, yeah. You know, we weren't quite as lucky in New York. And don't get me wrong. I respect a lot of DJs there. I don't blame, I don't blame them. I, you know, I blame the, the people that were in charge of the music and programming. And there was some good stuff, but I always thought, it, you know, when we go, I didn't travel much because we didn't have much money. But when I did and I heard rock radio in other markets, even Philly, like when I was in South Jersey, at like my godfather's framing houses one summer or getting in a, a pit of cement for as a masonry, masonry. I discovered more bands on Philly radio stations than New York radio stations. So that was it was markets like Cleveland that were the leaders where, where you're from. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as much as I love all the DJs and have gotten to know the DJs that I listened to as a kid growing up and have worked with them at either SiriusXM or other stations, I always felt New York Radio fell short. And it, it actually drove me even harder to want to get into radio because I felt like they were missing out the boat on so many great rock artists uh, in, in the 70s. 
Uh, and by the eighties, of course I was doing college radio. So I didn't, I was doing whatever I wanted, uh, in college radio and music had changed quite a bit too. You know, there was still, I was still playing a ton of rock, but I also played punk and new wave stuff. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was a good fertile time to get into college radio. So that's why, you know, I'm very, very blessed that I, you know, was able to make a career out of doing radio, something that I wanted to do and love. And pretended I was doing from the time I was a child. And that's um, awesome because it's like, you know, you had you had that drive, that passion and, and that support, you know, from your family. I remember when I was doing that as a kid and my hopes and dreams. But unfortunately, people that I kind of like, you know, I mean, as we'll we'll get into about like our fears and insecurities as kids and stuff that are sometimes planted in us by people that love us and mean well. You know, I had somebody telling me the opposite. Oh, that's not, you know, that's not for you. That's not, you know, and then it just, you know, you're a kid and you just listen to what they're telling you and you don't, don't go for it. And now like all these years later, now I'm like doing this podcast. Cause I'm like, damn it. I'm going to still try and chase after these, these dreams I had as a child, you know? Of course. And, and that's a great thing. That is the beauty of new technology is that you can and do have an opportunity to have a platform to do things which didn't exist back then. I mean, if you didn't get on college radio back then, or you weren't in a smaller like market where I know a lot of people that started this working at radio stations when they were 16, but I would have dreamed of that when I was a kid, but you know, there were only so many stations and we were surrounded by Philly and New York and, you know, getting into those stations as somebody new, you know, yeah. like everybody else in the planet was trying to, you know, that was the pinnacle to, you could get a gig on a New York radio station. I and mean, that's why I started in college radio. And then I did the Jersey shore for, for many years, but you know, it's uh, but I know what you're talking about. You know, it's, it's really important. I don't think necessarily, I mean, my, that was a good thing about my father and uh, that, you know, maybe we didn't have much money because we didn't definitely not, not on a teacher's salary. You wouldn't, you know, you, everybody's really well aware of that, but, um, but he used, the other creative things he did to try and help. And at the time, you know, when you're young, you don't realize that you're like, well, this is great. Yeah. But you know, when you get older, you know, no, my dad's no longer alive. He passed in 2008. I realized how many things he did that had an effect on me. And, you know, it's so true. We're so impressionable when we're younger and we're already dealing with peer pressure and, you know, the, uh, whether we're trying to be accepted by those, you know, people yeah. and there's bullies and there's, there's assholes and there's, just people, and, and you don't realize until you get older how fucked up they were and how fucked up their parents were and treated them. And that's why yeah. not the way they were. Um, and uh, But it was one of those things where there were little things that my dad would do, like helping me build that station, which, of course, I only did <clears throat> really until about puberty because, you know, you're older and you're really interested in girls, but I never lost the want to eventually get into radio or be a rock star. It was one or the other, right? And, and so... You know, you went on, you know, with with your musical uh, or, or working with the radio stations following that dream. And then like when did uh, like the advent of like getting catching the eye of MTV when MTV came out? And You know, that. I got to tell you, and one of the things that's really interesting to me when I try to think back about it and the influence of my father. Right. Um, is that so I was like every other kid like kids are now, you know, kids are, you know. Obviously, you know, with technology, they're making movies, films, and, you know, whatever they're doing with TikTok and all these other, and YouTube, 
Um, they've been doing for a long time. But I was one of those kids early on that I think people probably thought was a weirdo, but I was super interested. And I was. I was a weirdo because, you know, music was my obsession. But my dad had these, one of the very first ever, um, and it wasn't his, it belonged to the school system. But he had one of the giant big Sony cameras. And it, you know, was connected by wire to this big open video uh, recorder. So they were called uh, VTRs, not VCRs, videotape recorders. And they were big open reels, like the reel-to-reels that you would have seen in the 60s and 70s. Um, And it was new technology, and the schools had them. And what my dad would do, you know, and, you know, secretly was bring that home during the summer or during Christmas break or you know, spring break and me and my friends would make movies in the basement, you know? I mean, we didn't have endless tape to use, so we'd have to record over things, but he'd like, he'd get us like one tape and we'd make movies in the basement. And and very comfortable being in front of a camera then already. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's what I think, you know, I think to myself, I'm like, well, you know, the seeds were planted and I never really thought about it until years later. Um, but that certainly was a part of it. Um, MTV came along while I was in college radio. So MTV started in 1981. Um, Not everybody had it. I didn't have it in my house. My friends had it. We heard about this new thing. Um, Sometimes you go watch it at other people's houses, but I would have a friend at that period of time, uh, you know, VHS tapes were uh, some people had beta, which didn't, which of course, you know, faded into obscurity very quickly. And most people had VHS tapes. So I had friends that would tape, you know, hours, you know, they'd go on yeah. the six hour mode on a tape, you know, on low quality and record MTV from here. And, or they'd sit there and record videos that they, they thought were cool. And that was my introduction to MTV back in the very beginning of the 1980s. And it made sense because the things that were kind of breaking through on MTV were also, you know, kind of breaking through in college radio. So there was the timing synergy that was that was happening there, and uh, and I was very interested in it, and um, I certainly loved it. I just never really, honestly thought I not that I wouldn't have loved it then, but I never really saw myself doing that. To be honest with you, you know, I always thought radio was going to be the thing. I didn't really think I had a chance of of you know being on television at that. To be honest with you, and and the story is very interesting, Bill, because. You know, when I finally did uh, get the opportunity to be on MTV, it was years later. You know, I, I had worked three, four nights a week uh, DJing in nightclubs and built up a pretty big following doing that. So that's how I supported myself. And I had a daughter very young, you know what I mean, in my early 20s, you know. Uh, so when, so I mean, I had to do that. Me and her mother both worked. And, um, but and then I and then the radio station signed off. This this alter, this like well alternative is part of the word because it wasn't really a straight up alternative. It was just an album rock station freeform, but it was commercial. So in other words, it did it did have advertising, sell advertising. It was uh, you know so you got paid, but you got paid like less than you know it was minimum wage no matter what you know and. Um, these guys signed on this cool radio station, WHTG in the Asbury Park, New Jersey area. And uh, I found out about this from a friend. A guy walked into a record store that my my friend owned and uh, where I would buy all my like imports and stuff that I would spin at the clubs. 
And he said, hey, man, Mac, there's, uh, he knew about, you know, my college radio show. I, but, you know, I was like a big fish in a small pond. I built a big following through college radio. And one of the reasons why was because I would also support local bands. I was, I was encouraging local artists to send me their demo tapes and bring in cassettes or reel-to-reels. And then we would play them and help, you know, them book a, get a crowd for their live shows in the area of, you know, central New Jersey. So... This guy comes into a record store and he goes, hey, man, so there's, there's this radio station that you should be on. I'm like, really? Where? And he says, the Jersey Shore. I'm like, look, what? And, and but oddly enough, it didn't really come in where I lived. I mean, it was you had to drive like 45 minutes south or a half hour south just to get it in because it was in the, it was literally on the shore and I was in central Jersey. So um I found out about it. I made him a demo tape. I called him up and this guy, Mike Marone, answered the phone and said, hey, I know you from the college radio. I used to work at this gem uh, import, import record distributors and I've heard you on the air. Make a demo for us and, and bring it in. And I made a demo and they liked it because I'd had practice, you know, being on college radio. And uh, then I started doing weekends and I was on weekends, Saturday and Sunday nights um, and then whatever shift they would give me, you know, like in other words, if somebody didn't want to work on the holidays, I drive through the snowstorm. Uh, you know, if somebody didn't, couldn't do an overnight, I would do it. You know, I would just do whatever it took. Uh, that's how badly I wanted to be in radio. And so we, you know, you, you, you have to pay your dues. I went through one, one New Year's Eve into New Year's day where I DJed all night. There was a massive snowstorm. And I ran out of gas on a big empty highway in the snow and had to walk with a gas can several miles <laughs> and wait, find a gas station that was open on New Year's Day. <laughs> you know what I mean? You got This is like the mid 80s. And um, and then, you know, uh, eventually get it. But that was just, you know, that's what you do and you, and you get through it. So eventually I got an opportunity to be the music director at that radio station. And um, once I became the music director, I had contact with the record industry, you know, people that were, you know, promo people that were working records that needed airplay or were trying to get airplay. And that changed yeah. everything because then people understood that there was a passionate guy out there who loved music. And I'm not saying I was the only one, but I was definitely one of the people that wasn't being like the nasty gatekeeper I think the best way to describe it was I was looking for reasons to play people's records, not not to play them. Yeah. So, you know, so that changed everything. And then uh, an opportunity came along where the people at MTV in the music department were tracking. They they liked the station um, and they it didn't have a big signal, but it broadcast into lower Manhattan and it broadcast across the water into lower Long Island because we were by the shore. Uh, where you couldn't get it in central Jersey. It was one of those things that depended on where, how low the land was, whether you could hear our station or not. Um, so some of those people became regular listeners, loved the station, and they started calling me up and saying, hey, man, do you mind if we track records with you? Uh, because as we pick videos, we want to know if they actually have some heat on them. If people really like these songs, we'd just love to you know, pick your brain on a regular basis. And that, that started a friendship with me and the people in the music department at MTV. And at one point I saw that Dave Kendall was leaving 120 minutes. And uh, that was the alternative show that was on Sunday nights. And yeah. uh, I called them up. I read in, in what they had back then they had these things called radio trades. Now they have them online like ramp and all access and inside radio and, 
you know, they would they have the charts of airplay, and um, that's what the, that's what they have. But back then, they were like, you know, they were all print, you know, because we're talking about, you know, early, early '90s. And so, I uh, call up this guy Kurt Stefik from uh, from the MTV Music Department, and I said, "Hey, dude, what's going on? Like, why why is what happened to Dave Kennelly?" He goes, "Oh, I don't know. They blew him out. Something happened. I think he was smoking in the office and." part of the building caught on fire something crazy i don't know <laughs> there's been all kinds of rumors but i mean i like dave kendall very much you know i give him a lot of credit for helping start 120 minutes and being a uh you know uh you know a uh, being on the forefront of that um and so i said just naively to them i said and i was being naive and i, I wasn't being cocky i just said it because i really believe this and I said, look, you guys need somebody like me to host that show or who artists respect and knows something about the music. And I wasn't saying that they didn't. I was just saying they needed somebody. It couldn't just be a talking head. Yeah. And the, res the response was really funny. Kurt Steffick said, well, I don't know if they'll think you're in the demo, but uh, I'll call <laughs> you back in like a week. And the joke is I went on to work for MTV, even behind the scenes on and off to like the mid 2010s like 2000 you know 13 or 14 uh on and off doing different things for them uh so can you imagine when i heard that in 1992 uh i don't know if you'll be in the demo so that's, that's <laughs> right but i mean yeah. then again oh, who would have thought they would have put a bald guy on tv especially a chubby bald guy from <laughs> jersey who talks with his hands like an italian irishman like i am and english by the way but uh Mostly Irish, some Italians, some English as well. Um, well but English you got our attention, you yeah, know. You made yeah. you you had everybody's yeah. attention. Like I remember, you know, when when we first got MTV here, and uh, you know, the two biggest shows for me that exposed me to some of the, of the the music that I still listen to today, that I wasn't hearing on the radio as much, was you know, Headbangers Ball, Ricky Ratman, and then 120 Minutes with Matt Pinfield, and and I, and, and you guys like got me into so much music that I wouldn't have heard anywhere else that I'm still a fan of today. And I have my own collections and, man, I had the pleasure of having Ricky on this show already. And now I got you, man, I'm going through my MTV bucket list, man. Well, that's fantastic. I love Ricky. You know, Ricky's a great guy, man. He's out on tour right now on the road, you know, doing this thing where he's telling the story about, you know, the days at the cat house and being Axel's roommate and Hudbanger's ball. So yeah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, and that's a great thing, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, I got nothing but love and respect for Ricky. So at this point, when you know, I loved 120 minutes too, and uh, this is the this is a really crazy thing to to uh, to uh, admit, but I went through a period where I moved with my daughter, so there was an actual year and a half where I didn't have MTV at all, um, which was bizarre, you know, because I had MTV when she was super little, and then I moved to this new apartment. And was running a radio station, but did not have MTV there, um, which was nuts. And it was even around that time, believe it or not. So um, when I said that to Kurt Steffick, he said, you know, I'll check with them. I'll get back to you in a week. And then he called me an hour later <laughs> after I said to him, like, hey, man, you guys should have somebody like me out there. And he goes, hey, they want you to come in for an audition. And I was like, really? I was, you know, I was totally in shock, but. I was super excited about it. And then they went in, I did an audition. I laughed because I had like a Morrissey shirt with a rip on it. You know, I didn't yeah. like, I just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I was certainly, 
you know, I was a face for radio and a guy who was dressed uh, just like, you know, whatever. I mean, it was just so funny. And and the joke is that I also ended up on the real world season one for like a brief minute because that club that I DJed in the melody, um, there was this band called rain dance and that guy, Andre, who was in rain dance was one of the people who lived in the first real world house. And his guitarist is Dean who's in, Queens of the Stone Age and the dead weather. And, you know, it's crazy, but, um, you know, because, you know, he's from Detroit, you know, where Jack White's from. But it's just yeah. like this crazy thing I ended up on there. And that's another situation where I went to work with the stained shirt. I was hung over from the night before. <laughs> and uh, and then that thing aired, you know, it was new then. They're like, hey, we're going to be on the show called The Real World. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, and I forgot they were coming. And they came and they shot with me. And then like a thousand times you saw my dirty shirt on tv but before you know they called me up they did the audition and one day they call me and they say look it's 120 minutes uh we're right now we don't have a host so depeche motor coming on but they do not want to host they want to be interviewed so that's the first show that i did in uh where i hosted it in 93 it was the winter of 93 it was around songs of faith and devotion i went on there did the interview with him was a little stiff but i was i wasn't bad for a guy who'd never ever done tv before and um and you know they called me back up and invited me up to the offices and i'm like wow maybe they're gonna hire me this would be amazing and when i get there they said to me matt we're gonna use you as a backup but we're gonna have lewis largent who uh you know our vice president of music and uh, to do the show and when when you know when he can't do it we'll have you in and i it was a bit heartbreaking and speaking of heartbreaking, Lewis died recently, and he was a very dear friend of mine. And that was a horrible thing for me, uh, the news to get, because I loved Lewis very much, and I ended up in the music department with him. So that's where the story goes next, Bill. You know, yeah. uh, a year goes by, and people ask me, well, all right, so you didn't get the show the first time. They asked me two things. How did you deal with the fact that everybody, they did newspaper articles and everybody in your town and your area of New Jersey knew you were on the show once, but you didn't get the show. How did you deal with that, that kind of like disappointment, heartbreak and having to answer people on a regular basis? And I said, well, I put the most positive spin on it I could. Cause when they did say to me, we're going to use you as a backup, whether or not that was true or not. And I didn't completely believe that, uh, that's what I told people. I said, well, they're going to use me as a backup. Hey, hey baby. baby. This, this is Double D, D, also D, known as Dream Daddy. Daddy. And I got to tell y'all something about our new sponsorship here at today's Doggle. And the name is Dream Nutrition. So if you're looking to empower your human vitality, well, then you come to the right place. With over 12 years of combined experience in cannabinoids and terpene products, Dream Nutrition products include CBD oils, patches, proteins, and so much more. The endocannabinoid system is believed to have involvement in regulating physiological and cognitive processes, including the immune system, appetite, pain sensation, mood, memory, and in mediating the pharmacological effects of cannabis. Support this veteran-owned and operated company today, and today's Boondoggle fans will receive 
10% off their orders when using the promo code BOONDOG10 at checkout. That's B-O-O-N-D-O-G-10 at checkout. So go to the link. That's dreamnutrition.com forward slash discount forward slash boondog10. And remember, dream is not spelled like dream daddy. It's spelled D-R-E-E-M. And start saving today because you deserve to feel your best. And you know that's right. So tell them dream daddy and your friends from today's boondog sent you. And every, you know, I won two, these two national radio awards, National Alternative Music Director of the Year, where you're voted on by your peers and record labels from 91 and 92 before that. And I was very, very, and I was, that was also very much a surprise to me because uh, I was really blown away by that. It was usually only people from major cities. So when Asbury Park won, people were like, who is this guy? And um, I was just a music enthusiast and I wanted to break as many artists as I could at the radio station. And, um, I did not expect to ever be on TV again. And this is the really interesting thing. Andy Schoen, who hired me at MTV, who is, you know, uh, I have so much to thank for, uh, for giving me a shot there. Um, I called him like once a month. There was no, you know, there was no internet yet. There was none of this stuff. And um, the only way that I could stay in touch with him was to be on his call log. And I didn't really expect him to call me back but i just didn't want him to think i want to i wanted to stay on his radar so i didn't harass him and this is what i tell people to do when they ask me what do you do i go well let people know you're there but don't harass him and don't drive him nuts and that was like there's got to be a balance so every month i I still learn that (laughs) oh we all do you know we all learn We, we all we all got life lessons all the time and so you know i just kept doing my radio thing and you know, I'd hit a wall there because I loved the radio station. We were Rolling Stones Medium Market Station of the Year and by, voted by fans and listeners. And we'd broken a lot of artists. Um, but I was still working three or four jobs because, you know, even being an award-winning music director and doing afternoons on the station, um, you know, I was making less than, you know, somebody who was working at a fast food restaurant at that period of time. But I loved what I did. So, I mean, that was the thing. And I just worked as many jobs as I could. So I could keep living, you know, like pursuing the dream. You know, that was what it was. And uh, so one day, um, you know, I get a, I find out, I get a call that they're looking for new people in the music department. And because um, three people were leaving and the music department are the 10 people that picked all the videos and worked on the unplugs and the storytellers and the whatever, you know, like all those different things, you know, and program yeah. the music for Headbangers Ball, 120 Minutes. Yo MTV raps um, and literally everything, you know, VMAs, you name it. And um, I had always stayed in touch. And eventually I got that call and, uh, you know, to come in and interview for it. And it was unbelievable um, when I went there because, uh, you know, again, when they saw me talk with my hands, I'm like, am I freaking them out? Because I'm so <laughs> stressed, you know, um, which is very much an East, Northeast, East Coast thing, whatever. Uh, or maybe it, I don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, eventually I, I'm waiting to hear about this job. And uh, I work on a radio station that only has three phone lines. The radio station, there's a documentary on it if people want to look it up. The station was WHTG, uh, Modern Rock at the Jersey Shore. And it was in a house. A woman owned, owned the station who lived on the other side of the house. And uh, nice. although it was so influential, 
And, you know, you hear about, you know, you know, Bruce Springsteen listened to it. You know, everybody, it was just one of those things where it was a really important radio station. Nobody made a dime. And uh, it was owned by a woman who lived in the house, a very eccentric woman named Faye Gate, who was, you know, ultimately was a lovely woman. And she was the one who told the new program director who came in uh, at one point, before you hire a new music director or pick one, you need to meet this guy. And so I have her also to thank for that. And um, and she, she's no longer with us. But um, I, I got to be honest with you, I was waiting for this phone call to find out what was happening, whether I got this job in the MTV Music Department. And... Uh, because I needed to make a move in my life at that period of time. And uh, every time for three or four hours, you got to remember, there's a sales office, there's a production office, there's a front desk reception, and the request line. They were all the same lines. So there were only three. <laughs> and I think at that point, we might have had one push button phone. Some of them were still dial up. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, it was all old equipment. Our equipment was shit. But uh, it was a labor of love. And it was a great radio station. And um, I'm sitting there like I'm losing it because I can't obviously go, hey, they're calling me about another job. You're not going to say that when you're there. Um, yeah. I'm like, fuck, what if, I, you know, and I had this like really crazy feeling like, what if I, holy shit, what, what if he changes their mind because they can't get through, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I had all those crazy thoughts going through my head. And then eventually the, Phone rings and it is Andy show. And he says to me, Hey, Matt, I've been trying to call the radio station for three hours. So, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Andy. There's only three lines here, man, uh, for the entire station. And the quest line's always going in the front office and the sales department. He goes, I'll tell you what, come work for me and I'll make sure you have more than three lines in your office. And that was the day my life changed. I mean, completely. Uh, and I went to work at MTV and I, and I want to you know, finish by saying when I went to work there at MTV in the music department, it was an incredible job to have being one of the 10 people that picked the music and worked on all the specials, you know, helped convince the channel to do Kiss Unplugged, which they were not really convinced until I went in there with Alex Coletti who produced the Unplugged. So, you know, there were a lot of different incredible things to be a part of. Um, but I want to make it really clear that I never expected to A, be on TV again, ever. Like I was afraid to even bring it up that I was on there at all because the last thing I wanted them to do is, oh, he didn't want this job. He's just trying to get on TV. I was really worried that they, they, they thought I'd have a hidden agenda. So I'd never brought up being on TV. So I never thought I'd be on TV again, other than that one time I was in 93. And I never thought I'd be able to do radio again because I thought I was going, I mean, I had to leave the radio station. And that day I went home and I sat at the kitchen table and I had felt like something had died at the same time I was, there was an excitement. There was a bittersweetness to the fact that I was going to work in MTV, but the radio station was done. So I'm not doing a radio show anymore. So there was a, you know, there was that give and take. Um, and little did I know that, you know, a few months after I'd worked there, they would say, Hey, you were pretty good that time. We're going to give you three more weeks. And then after one week, they're like, you got the gig, which was uh, 120 minutes, which was incredible. And then I did Matt rock, which was the later headbangers ball, you know? And, uh, that was really Headbangers Ball with different graphics and a different name, but it was Headbangers Ball. So, but it was an incredible time and an incredible ride. And I was there uh, through, you know, that whole period of the 90s. And, um, you know, and I moved to LA for Farm Club that I did, uh, worked with Andy Schoen again. He was like yeah. one of the heads there with Jimmy Ivey. And, and I wanted to talk to you about Farm Club real quick because I remember you're watching the very first episode on USA. And there's a there's another Cleveland connection we have there because my friends in the band Chimera were on the that 
that first, I believe that first inaugural farm club episode of yours. Yeah, we're a really great band. I always loved those guys. And that was the, I mean, listen, that show was so ahead of its time. The idea was uh, before anybody had broadband or really had the technology was for artists to upload their music, people to vote on it. And you had a TV show, a record label and a website. Uh, it was a brilliant idea from Jimmy Ivey and Doug Morris, who, uh, you know, Doug Morris is now, I think, um, one of the heads of Universal. He's, you know, he's done so many different things. And obviously Jimmy Iovine, you know, uh, is, is pretty much retired after, you know, having done beats and, you know, selling beats to Apple Music and all the other stuff. But, um, you know, and I, they wanted me to be the first ever pitch man for, uh, for, for Beats headphones. Uh, years later, I got a call from Jimmy and Luke Wood and Dre. Uh, when they were on the Home Shopping Network, nobody knew what Beats headphones were yet. And I was like, oh, can I tell you tomorrow? Because I have to go to South by Southwest. I have to host this broadcast. And they're like, well, call us back in 24 hours. I called back and said, I can do it. And they're like, Home Shopping Network sucks. They only want to use their own people. They used the excuse that we didn't know right away. I'm like, well, fuck them. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's a really funny story. But yeah, so Farm Club was way ahead of its time. And uh, the woman who produced it, who used to work at MTV before that, uh, Audrey Morsi, has produced The Voice every single uh, season and a bunch of other things. And we sat in my hotel room and I was there and came up with the idea of going to see people and visit them where they work and in their hometowns. And that was the first yeah. show that ever did that. And it became a regular thing on Idol and all these other shows, any reality show, when they go back and they do a backstory, it's called a package. Um, we came up with that in my hotel room and no one was doing it before that. I don't care. You know. Yeah. The, Jimmy, the bass player at Camara is a good friend of mine and he owns a barbershop. He cuts my hair now. So, that's so, great. I love yeah. those guys. Yeah. They're really cool. They're getting ready to do a little reunion thing at the Cleveland Agora in May. So excited about that. Cleveland's so legendary, you know? I mean, there's yeah, so speaking of Cleveland music, I've heard you mention this before. And uh, being the walking encyclopedia of music that you are, talk about how uh, the Dead Boys have influenced you. You know, you're not going to believe this. I just wrote for a new book that's coming out. Uh, Mitchell Cohen, who wrote the book on Arista Records. And, uh, you know, he co-wrote my book. So my book that I wrote, all these things that I've done my insane improbable rock life. Uh, Mitchell was my co-writer on that because I needed somebody to organize, help organize my thoughts when I wrote my, my memoir in 2015 that was released in 2016. Mitchell was working on a new book and it had to be about um, an artist or an album that was very important and influential but did not make it into the Billboard Hot 100. And so I picked the Dead Boys, Young, Loud, and Snotty to write about. And there are a lot of other really well-known journalists and writers in there. Lenny Kay, of course, who created the whole, who's from the Patti Smith group and, you know, came up with the whole Nuggets idea, that first album, original artifacts from the first psychedelic era. And I was, I had to pick an album to write about. And so I literally just turned it in the other day for this book that's coming out on these albums. But I picked the Cleveland band, The Dead Boys, Young, Loud and Snotty, because I think it's one of the most important albums in the history of punk. And I, and it's interesting because Rolling Stone in their greatest punk albums of all time, put it at number seven, but I don't hear it referred to enough by other journalists and people to really understand how important that dead boys record is. And uh, obviously the second one was, was a little more slick. They had a lot of trouble finishing it. Uh, you know, there's, you know, cause like, like everything else, there's, you know, drugs, insanity and everything else that goes along with it. 
of course, on the second album, they did Ain't It Fun, and then Guns N' Roses covered it and made Cheetah Chrome a lot of money because they put it on their greatest hits. But yeah. uh, I think the first Dead Boys record, Young, Loud, and Snotty with Sonic Reducer, is one of the greatest punk records ever made. And uh, it's interesting how they moved to New York and became a part of the whole CBGB scene. Um, but I but I do. I love that record. I think it's... Uh, it's an, and, you know, look, I'm not the only one, right? I mean, Pearl Jam oh. covered Sonic Reducer. Um, you know, their band before that, Green River, did Ain't Nothing to Do from that record. Uh, Corey Taylor from Slipknot on his solo tour was doing all this and more and actually has a cover of that on his CMF B-Sides, you know, EP that he put out where he covered oh, nice. things. So there are many fans of that Dead Boys record, but it just doesn't get the respect it deserves. Um so as far as a punk record goes, I just think it's. Uh, yeah, well, I hear you on I've heard you on uh, quite a few interviews putting it out there, man. So definitely, uh, you know, that's that's awesome that, uh, you know, you you, uh, you know, are a big fan of them and, uh, you know, a Cleveland band. And what are some, other, you know, being the, the musical encyclopedia you are, what are some other Cleveland influenced uh, bands that you've been? Uh, well, you know, plus? One of my favorites is the Raspberries, you know, who were uh, very much yeah. a pop band out of Cleveland with Eric Carmen was the lead vocalist. But I love the Raspberries. And, uh, you know, it's funny. That's the one thing that's really interesting. People like me and Eddie Trunk both agree on the Raspberries being great. And and Raspberries were very much this pop band uh, that had, an, you know, just really like three hits. And and a, and a semi fourth hit back in the 1970s, in the early 70s, he did the song "Go All the Way," which was just an absolutely incredible song. It was one of the loudest singles ever recorded. It was certainly inspired by Beatles and Dave Clark Five and British Invasion stuff, Beach Boys. Then they had "I Want to Be with You Tonight" and a song called uh, "Over Overnight Sensation Hit Record," which Bruce Springsteen's gone on to say is one of his favorite singles of all time. Um, I mean, Cleveland is just there's there's just been a lot of really cool stuff out of there. Right. I mean, cause you can also say, right. You can say James gang, right. Yeah. You could also say nice nails. If you want to take Trent, right. From being from around that area. No. Um, which other bands did, did you say think you would like? Well, I mean, we had, you know, uh, Michael Stanley, of course, you know, you know, and by the way, I was a big Michael Stanley fan. I got that uh, double live album that he put out called Backstage Pass when I was a teenager. And uh, there was a song there called Nothing's Gonna Change My Mind that I loved. That was like a pop record. And then he went on to have many other hits like He Don't Love You. And, you know, uh, so I used to buy all Michael Stanley's records, you know, when I was a teenager. Um, and never knew he was from Cleveland back then, you know? So who yeah. else Who else would you think of? Well, uh, you know, some of the ones that I had the uh, privilege of becoming personal friends with, like I mentioned, Chimera, you know, uh, Mushroom Head. Yeah, um, yeah, of course, great. And the great man, right? But, uh, you know, if we look back at the older uh, stuff, like, I mean, I, I was growing up here, but I never got to see like any of the, the indie club shows of Nine Inch Nails because I think I was in high school at the time. And then I went off into the Navy when like they really hit it with downward spiral so by the time i was finally getting to see nine inch nails they were playing big auditoriums and stuff you know yeah and they're just one of the great bands trent and i you know we're friends you know i've been friends for many years i saw him last year for the first time in ages where we just got to hang out and talk to each other about everything from sobriety to uh 
life, you know, and that was uh, uh, just like backstage at that Welcome to Rockville Daytona last year. It was just so good to see him and hug him. And, you know, Trent is, uh, you know, he's he's the kind of person that he, you know, he is, he's got to like you and trust you. And, and, you know, that was the thing. But we've been, we've been friends from the very, very beginning of Pretty Hate Machine. So, um, and yeah. always been on good terms, you know. Um, and well, Mark O'Shea is a good friend of mine. They're old uh, tour manager. Mark O'Shea, um, yeah. he, uh, I was just at his house for his uh, birthday party. We become close friends and, you know, he's part of our fellowship as well. So, yeah. And you know. then we, we should talk about that too. We should talk about how sobriety. Yeah, changed. that's what I, I definitely, I wanted to get into that with you because like, you know, you've had all these like amazing, this amazing career and this amazing life, but how much after you had the, this like near death experience, have you really feel like you're starting to live now, you know? Well, I mean, I think the real truth is that, um, you know, these were these two major life events took place. So obviously the time that I was hit by the car here in Hollywood, which wasn't my fault. It was somebody driving and texting or on the phone. And, you know, I was nearly killed. I uh, was crossing the street. And uh, at the time I wasn't drunk. You know, I was just walking across the street at like 730 at night and um, from a strip mall. Uh, and you know, woman ran a red light and, you know, hit me in my, I jumped up, which saved my life. Cause I saw her in the corner of my eye, snapped my leg in half, went through a windshield, tore my head open the entire, my entire head open. And then I went through a windshield with my body and then was thrown. She hit the brakes and I flew out of the car, flew in the air and landed on the side of the street. And they basically told me in the ambulance that they were amazed that I wasn't paralyzed or dead. Uh, and then it was a long road recovery, eight months of, uh, you know, walking on a walker, physical therapy, walking on a cane. And, you know, um, now I've got a metal rod in that right leg and they did a beautiful job of sewing up my head. It was completely torn open and my ear partially back on. But, um, and, uh, you know, I'm very grateful because it could have been so much worse. Had I not seen the car, I would have been under it, probably dead. Had I, um, even though it was a split second, it was unbelievable. And uh, so that and then struggling for years with drugs and alcohol and literally wanting to beat it and trying and trying endlessly before it actually started to take hold and here i am coming up on three years sober now because something changed in me um yeah i think uh you know that's you know i tried to embrace the program and recovery and I was in and out of meetings and in and out of treatment centers and, you know, just coming back and forth. And eventually I, it just really between the, you know, supporting the love of my friends and my brothers and sisters in, in recovery, it changed everything for me. And, uh, you know, and so I consider myself extremely blessed that I had, uh, you know, that thing, it just clicked and it's where I'm at right now. And it's something that, you know, you live with forever and yep. the one way to, you know, to keep things going is to stay in the center of the recovery program and be of service and help others. And that's what I do. And I, you know, that's why, you know, I do the sober, uh, uh, you know, the sound sober, uh, sound sobriety and success podcast. And I also, you know, I'm constantly working with guys that are, uh, you know, like sponsees, uh, that are, you know, type sponsees, people that I took to, and I have, you know, we all have sponsors, we, you know, yeah. I don't use the actual name of the uh, program because it's part of the principles not to mention what it's called but 
Everybody yeah. knows which one it is. And my problem was with alcohol and drugs. Um, I fell in love with alcohol and drugs. I found, you know, I used alcohol because uh, it just made it enhanced at a, at a young age out of boredom, made you feel different, made you feel more confident, made you enjoy the rock and roll more, or at least you thought so. And, uh, <laughs> to a degree, yes. I mean, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying every experience I had was horrible because there were obviously some good ones. It worked for a while until it didn't. Yeah. You know, in my club years, I got into drugs, I got into cocaine, I got into speed, I got into things that would keep me up longer and keep me going. Keep and, me able to drink more. Yep. Yeah, I can drink more. So that was the thing. I mean, you know, and I and I grew a love for cocaine and a love for speed and a love for booze. And I just uh, never really wanted the party to end. And uh, by the time it started to really affect my life and, and cause, uh, you know, uh, problems and certain consequences, I went through many years of trying to get it right and then falling back into it. And uh, it just really happened for me just about three years ago. So well, what I've kind of, you know, I could speak a little bit on, you know, the interactions that we've had. Um, and you just said yourself, you know, all these years you were trying. Now it's almost like you've kind of, you, you know, we get to a point of complete surrender and that's when it really works. When we finally like surrender to our higher power in the program. Yeah, that's what it is. You know, I got to say that, with you. that uh, it is, it was real surrender. I think this time around, it was during the pandemic. I was drinking massively um, and, uh, you know, my friends realized it, you know, and I'd already gone through so many times where. You know, I was affecting my heart. I mean, I was in the hospital one time and uh, literally my, um, my, my, they told my friends in the emergency room, this is, a, they said, we have no idea how your friend is alive. His heart is going, his readings are off the charts. He should have had a stroke or a heart attack. He shouldn't be alive right now. How's your friend alive? You know, and if, usually you would think that would wake you up, you know, yeah. but of course, uh, the disease of alcoholism and addiction doesn't really have any logic to it you know what i mean it's like you've got it's got to be a power greater than yourself and whether that is something that you believe in in a god or a higher power or if you believe in the power of numbers of people that are in the program um and those that community whatever that is that works for you as long as it works um and uh we all choose you know like to do things are you know that way but i've found that this program is the only thing and that is that has worked for me. And that's a belief in a higher power and and a being of service and being part of the community and being active in meetings and uh and you know surrounding myself with good people, the like-minded people that are that really want to be well and want to um you know help others, you know, because yeah. you know that whole that whole thing, you know, you can't keep what you don't give away. Um, and that's why I like being transparent on my show too, and talking about this stuff, because I feel like there's somebody out there that's going to hear something and that's us reaching out and being of service. And that's why I love your, your new podcast. I, I was just listening to, like I said, the episode with, with Duff and, and also, um, you know, I, I listened to it on long drives. I just went to Pittsburgh over this past weekend and, uh, was hanging out with Frank, uh, Bellow from, uh, Anthrax. I love there, he, he was at a con, but during that two hour drive, I was listening to your podcast and why I'm listening to it. It's like, I'm still staying centered. I'm still like, I'm in a meeting, you know, it's helping get me and my head right before I get ready to go amongst like, you know, my anxiety would kick in usually going to crowds and places and stuff. Oh but, yeah. 
you were helping center me on that drive out there. But, and, and you know, that's, that's the reason why, you know, I'm grateful to do that. And I'm glad you're doing this is I think it's just so important. Um, for me, I understand uh, that part of it is protecting others in situations where it might affect their work or their livelihood. So I think that, you know, there's the anonymous side to recovery, but in a situation like mine where um, my friends really got around and, you know, it wasn't really no secret that I struggled, that while I'm doing well and finding a different way of life in a different direction, I want to share that with others because I am a public figure. And I think it's really important to let yeah. people know that there is another way and that it can happen for you at any age because it happened for me in my 50s. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I like I said, I tried, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really getting there. And I, I wasn't really... You know, I'd get a few months, you know, three months, six months, maybe the most nine months, but, uh, and then it would, you know, I'd fall off and it wouldn't be honest uh, sobriety. Uh, but this time it's completely honest. And I live a life of rigorous honesty because that's what it requires to yep. be super honest with yourself and with others. Um, I mean, it's a matter of self-preservation, you know, there's only, and you, you know, but that's what we have the groups for, you know, you know, you're, you know, it's, but, I figure that while I have a platform, um, I'll share my experience, strength, and hope with others because it your life can change greatly. And as long as you're breathing and you're alive and you're upright, even if you're not upright, you uh, you can change your life and you can help to try and change others and help others do it. And it's a really horrible, insidious disease that we uh, we've had to deal with. But um, the important thing is. Um, that there is an answer and there are ways uh, and, you know, I'm not saying there's only one way, but I know the only way that's worked for me is the program, you know? So, oh, yeah. so, and I'm a hundred percent into it. And I think that's the other thing too. You know, they, there's a line half measures availed us nothing. And that's it. You can't do anything halfway. Cause we certainly didn't drink halfway. No, we, we didn't. Certainly <laughs> didn't use halfway. I mean, I'm an all in kind of guy, you know, just the same way with music and everything else that I'm passionate about. And you are. Yeah. So we have a tendency to uh, just go all out. And uh, I wasn't a guy who could put down, you know, have two drinks and put it down. Maybe, maybe I would fool myself into believing that. Like one week ago, hey, man, you know, I think I might be all right now because I, I only had like three Jack Daniels or two, yeah. four, and then it's five. And then you're blacking out and, uh, and, yep. you know, you don't know who to apologize to or what you did the night before. I mean, everybody's journey is different, but I can tell you. Sleep my, so much better now because I can rest my head, you know, knowing before I go to bed, if there was something that I did wrong, I'm taking an inventory and how am I going to correct it, you know? Yeah. And I'm remembering things it's now. It's all about you know? gratitude as well. Yeah. Gratitude is such an important part of uh, of recovery because you have to stay in gratitude because, you know, you look at the world right now and there's just so much negativity and division. You know, you're, there's just, you know, there's people fighting over everything, you know, and offending oh, yeah. everything. Um, and I, um, I feel that, you know, there's enough negativity out there. I want to, I want to spread positive energy and, and talk positively about how my life has changed. And, um, and, you know, the thing that I say to anyone who's going through a rough time, it's not like, Every day is a great day for me or for anybody else who's in recovery. We have good days and we have bad days. And we have, but yeah. you know, the truth is it's still better than a day where, you know, you don't know what you did and what trouble you get yourself into or what you won't show up for those consequences. And um, 
you know, and uh, it's not worth it. You know, um, if, if you struggle, it's worth fighting to get a grip on your life when it's unmanageable. So, you know, I've got nothing but gratitude. I've had nothing but uh, amazing people in the program and in recovery that have helped me in a big way. And, oh, uh, yeah. and you know, don't worry. Well, I'm a person that needs that accountability. And here's the other thing I want to say too, Bill. Don't worry that it's going to take your edge away. Does it look like it's taking away any of mine? <laughs> oh no! I'm like, I'm not. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying. You know, it's um. It is really living life. You know. Yeah. That's our. That's our. Really, and it's scary at first when you get first get sober because you're not used to like kind of dealing with people and the public and everything without having that. You know that. That lubricant, that social that lubricant, lubricant, you know, yeah. and you might call comfort level, but it always, you yeah. know, it's so unpredictable uh, for us alcoholics that, you know, you don't know where it's going to take you. And, uh, you know, so it's a better way to live, you know, and I live by the mantra that I don't pick up a drink or do any drugs no matter what, because, and you know what? So far, so good, but every day is a new day and a reprieve. And I remember every morning when I wake up that, that's the way I've got to live my life. And I go to bed with the same thought in my head. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Yeah. To be and and now you're running and gunning sober, <laughs> living your life. And, and all these other opportunities still are opening up for you. Now you're working with the Danny Wimmer team. Yeah. I'm working with PWP. We have a TV show on access TV called the power hour. I do power with Pabs from Sirius XM Octane. Who's amazing. She's great. And also working with Josh Bernstein, who's an incredible guy who put the Golden Gods Awards together, has worked for Revolver Alternative Press, um, Loudwire. I mean, he's done so much stuff as well. Um, that's my team over there. And, you know, we work with incredible people from DWP. And, you know, I have a syndicated show that's on around the country called Flashback, which is a classic rock radio show that airs weekends at radio stations across the U.S. And I do KLOS in Los Angeles on Sunday nights, a show called New and Approved. So I keep busy. And then there's another show uh, that I have uh, through Live One, which is a weekly rock countdown. So I'm, I'm, you know, I keep busy. And uh, and when I'm not busy working or, or hanging out, you know, um, I have an incredible girlfriend now, too, that I'm in love with, that I live with. And, uh, you know, that relationship only would have happened being sober because she, she would have ran the other way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. let's be honest, man, I was a wild guy. I was, you know, but... um. But I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Any problems that come my way, I can deal with them and make better decisions because I'm sober. So I'm grateful for the work that I have and I just keep on going, you know, and just, uh, you know, try to do, be the best version of myself I can be every day. And some days are better than others, man. We're only human, you know, and yep. we're, we're a work in progress, progress, not perfection. You well, know one thing I know, I, I want to be, uh, you know, co conscious of your time and stuff, but, uh, one thing I wanted to ask real quick or touch on, because if I don't do this, I'm going to hate myself, but I'm a big fan of the DWP team. I've had a pleasure of getting to work with them through the podcast and the media tents and stuff like that. The last year when, when we hung first, like hung out. Incarceration. Uh, yeah. Incarceration. Uh, Danny Hayes introduced me to Master Chief Otis, who is new on the DWP team. And he's a retired Navy Master Chief. And because I'm, retired Navy. He connected us. He says, Hey, why don't you have him on your podcast? So had master chief Otis on here, got to hear about how much the DWP team supports the military and stuff. So I was trying to get Danny Hayes on here. I had this pitch for Danny Hayes and uh, 
Danny Hayes wasn't able to make it, but they put uh, they they sent me Holly from marketing and DWP, and she was on here on episode two twenty three. So I was like, she's Holly, great. Help me out with marketing this idea I have. You guys are going to be in my backyard for Sonic Temple in Columbus this year and incarceration in Mansfield again this year. And I said, Holly, how can I pitch getting the opportunity to sit on the couch for a couple interviews with my buddy, Matt Pinfield and Josh Balls at these festivals? And she's like, you know what? That's something you should ask Matt. So yeah, I'm well, asking you know- Matt. Hopefully we're going to be doing that still. I'm not sure if Twitch is going to be the platform we'll be using besides access. Uh, it might be, but it might be another platform. So you and I will cross that bridge though, but there's no reason why we can't do something fun together there. Absolutely. With you yeah, that. for sure. Exactly. Yeah, I, you know, Katie, whoever's going to be there. Uh, but our crew is, is a great crew and I love working with Jose Mangan, uh, Danny Wimmer, Danny Hayes, uh, Maureen Volker, everybody who works on that team are the best. I love them. And, uh, I love working with them. It's just, uh, yeah, you know. I had, I had to, I had to pitch that ball, Matt. Because, oh yeah. So uh, I'll tell you what, said, as, as a kid, and I'll let you know what's happening Yeah, because, um, you know, the Twitch, um, situation is up in the air right now. I know they're in negotiations. So as soon as I know more, I mean, I'll tell you when we're off the podcast, but I want to thank you for having me on bill. And, uh, and uh, thank you for doing this for me. It's such an honor, Matt. I really appreciate it. There's so much more. We'll have to do a part two sometime because there's so I'd much more yeah, I want to talk to you about. hundred percent. I'm believe it or not tonight. I got to head to the Grumman's Chinese theater. The, or is that which one it is? Kara? Yeah. Yeah. I got to go to, you know, the famous Chinese theater mm-hmm. in Hollywood here for a recording artist who, um, her name's Vaja. She's got a new video out. And she's got like one of the theaters and she's doing the Q and a and the big release thing. So yeah, you're still one of the busiest men in the, in the business. Well, I, you know, I, I I'm that. doing it as a favor as a friend. Cause she was like, yeah. I'm stuck. It's kind of like the Duff thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Duff, he was like, Matt, no one's here to interview me. I'm like, dude, I'm on my way. I'm an hour and a half away. I mean, I'll be there. So Awesome. You Matt, take- thank you so much for your time. Um, Real quick, I wanted to if I if you if I get one favor from you before before you leave, you mind cutting a promo ID for the show? Just oh, introduce yourself, and you're listening you to today's Boondoggle. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and you are listening to my great friend Bill Bailey on today's Boondoggle. Awesome, Matt! Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it, and Thank yeah, you. I'd love to follow up with a part two. There was so much stuff I still wanted to get to, but uh. We'll do um, it. Absolutely. I just yeah. got to run over there and I apologize to you, Bill. I got to head over and no, so it's you're not going, where is this guy? And you know, you know how it is trying to get traffic through Hollywood. Yeah. So, yeah. So you I can only imagine <laughs> and I got to get dressed though. I'm just kind of like hanging out. So but I, on, that's you, that cramp shirt's perfect. <laughs> I really should just wear the cramp shirt. I think it yeah. is. That thing. So I agree with uh, you. Morrissey started it all for you. You might as well keep going with the t-shirts yeah. now. Exactly. You know, it's great. Thank you for that. Bill, it was awesome today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, brother. Love you, man. Love you too, Bill. Take care, buddy. Sick of you, I'm walking on out.
Incarceration Music and Tattoo Festival is back July 14th through 16th at Ohio State Reformatory with Slipknot. Limp Biscuit. Pantera. Plus, Full Beat, Megadeth, Lamb of God, In This Moment, Highly Suspect, and more. Passes on sale now as low as $10 down at incarceration.com. Incarceration. So come and get it. Get it. Thank you for listening once again to today's Boondoggle Radio Show. Please be sure to check out our website, DomainCLE.com or Today'sBoondoggle.com for more shows and check out our archives. Follow us on social media at Today's Boondoggle on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter for more information about this podcast. And please support us on www.anchor.fm forward slash Today's Boondoggle as well as on our GoFundMe and Venmo. Be sure to subscribe, comment, download, and listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, and all the other podcast platforms out there. Please email us with any questions, suggestions, and comments via todaysboondoggle at gmail.com. Leave us some five-star reviews and help spread the word. Thanks again for listening. For tuning into this week's today's boondoggle. Domain Cleveland Entertainment is a veteran-owned and operated cornucopia of nonsensical shenanigans. You can find interesting interviews, music news and information, and just about everything else in between. Thank you again for supporting, sharing, and tuning into today's boondoggle. <laughs> <laughs>